Father, we're turning once again to your word, and it is both very challenging and very welcoming. So, Father, enhance the welcoming aspect of it and (coughs) diminish our puzzlement at things that we've puzzled over for years. Help us to understand what you're saying and what you're trying to get to us. This is telling us what real Christian life looks like, so we've got to understand these things. So we, we ask you to do this for the sake of the name of your son, Jesus, that his name would be, re- would be glorified in us as we live out the reality of what Romans is about. For Jesus' sake we pray, amen. I want to re- reiterate something that we haven't been pressing in recent studies, <clears throat> and that is Romans is aiming to get to chapter 15, 14 and 15, the, uh, the climax of a sermon. I, I, I know we think of this as a letter, and it is a letter, but a letter is, is what the author would say to the people if he were there. Yes. So this would have been a sermon if Paul had been in Rome speaking to the, to the congregations there in, in the city. Uh, you put your primary aim of a sermon at the end. I wish I could remember what Brother Gingrich used to say about uh, start low, strike fire, something rise higher. I, I, do you remember that at all? Um, but uh, you're, you're driving to a goal, and the goal is what's at the end of the book. <clears throat> what's at the end of Romans uh, 14, 1 to 15, 13, the, the, what follows in chapter 15 and 16 is more epistolary stuff, but in terms of the message as he's de- developing it, is calling the church at Rome to get over their petty differences over non-essential matters. <clears throat> and it's going to take the teaching of righteousness by faith to get us there. If if I'm righteous by works, then eating meat or not eating meat might be significant. But if I'm righteous by faith, then eating meat or not eating meat is an irrelevancy, and you must quit dividing over those kinds of irrelevant issues. And, and since they are things that are culturally, often culturally embedded um, in, a, in a person's psyche, you can't just walk away from it, it's there, um, then we tend to, to elevate them to be uh, primary issues instead of not even secondary. It's, it's so far down the list that I don't have a decenary <laughs> down to the 10th level. Uh, so, um, so why worry about those things? Um, yeah. Uh, off the wall question. If Paul were writing this letter today to the churches in the United States, what would be the, some of the pity? Well, denominations for one thing. I was just talking to a friend um, who, who is a student at a particular denominational seminary. Um, and this church, he's, he's on the staff here, this church is not in that denomination at all. This church has no denominational affili- affiliation like Central, like First of Ann does, and many others in town. Um, and um, they charge more if you don't go to one of their churches in tuition than, than they do if you, if you do attend one of their churches. Are you with me? And they kind of look down on you if you're not in their denomination. Well... Are there second-class Christians? And the answer is no, because we're all in Christ, and I must treat each other like as, as if we're in Christ. I have cousins. They're with the Lord now, but uh, they're actually my mother's cousin and her husband who were missionaries in Japan. They were uh, Nazarenes. And they, I, they were in our home one day, they lived in California when they were in country, but most of, the, most of the time they were either in Japan or in Okinawa. And they said that when you met a missionary in Japan, another Christian, it didn't matter what denomination they were because they're, they're brothers and sisters. And finally you have somebody you can share Christ with openly and, and talk about all that the Lord's been doing. And it just makes a world of difference. 
we live as if um, our groups are self-contained and right. Uh, so it, it, probably, it might well be denominationalism um, that would be in view. Yeah. So... Put music in that same place. Yes. Yeah. Music in that same, perhaps, yeah. Uh, the church isn't really dividing over music. It's just we're, from one point of view, we're having a music forced upon us. <laughs> but if we took our music and forced it on them, we'd be doing the same thing. So, um, uh, at some point, things have to change. I mean, some of you grew up in the 1950s when it was uh, the old rock and roll. I grew up in the 60s when it was the newer rock and roll, and then came the 70s, and there was disco. And so which one's right? And, of course, the one that's right is the one that the the hymns once for all delivered done to the saints, amen, (laughs) in the Baptist hymnal. (laughs) But um, uh, we've got to get over some of those things, too, and realize... um, there, there's what what you're looking for in music is a good message, and if you can if you can applaud the message, you might not enter into the music well, but you can applaud the message, and that's more important than anything else. People believe what they sing. Honestly, they believe what they sing. Eventually, we'll get to Romans nine, and there's that. It's already an eight, though. Whom he did for no, he also did for to be conformed to the, and we're going to have we're going to have trouble because that that's an e word. We don't like the e word. Amen. Election. We don't like that word, um, but uh, it's there. Um, the problem is not whether we believe in election or not. We must. The problem is defining it. Does this make sense to you? But we divide over these things. I'm more Calvinistic than you are, and you're, and you are more Calvinistic than I am. You know, I, and so, and that, that's the problem when you get into one of these um, set fields of theology. Uh, my my commitments are in dispensationalism and premillennialism, um, uh, but I I minister with people here on the staff who are on mill. And I have to be willing to, to deal with them. And I have to see that the scriptures, if they interpret the scriptures referencing Israel properly and include them appropriately within their amillennial doctrine, and that there are ways of doing that. It's, it's fairly an odd thing to do that. But if they're doing that, then I can't say, you're just out to lunch and, and uh, I can't have fellowship with you. Does this make sense to you? So, um, all of these things are in, in view here. Romans chapter four now is starting is ending the first major section of Romans. Um, I'm, I'm not as far back as I thought I, should, I was here. Um, um, the first major section is chapters one to four, where Paul is arguing that righteousness is by faith. So. Uh, going back to 118, uh, we usually read that, and it's it's an appropriate translation. There's, there's nothing wrong with this translation. The just shall live by faith. But because of the word order and because of the way Paul develops his letter, one of the major commentators on Romans suggested a, a different wording. Uh, the just by faith shall live. And, and, and the text will certainly permit that as a translation. So if that's the summary of chapters 1 to 8, as I've argued it is, folks have taken that verse as summary of the whole book. It's not. Uh, It doesn't even get to the application of the book. The application section we tack on at the end. Yes? Uh, Last year on Wednesday nights I taught the book of Romans. And and, uh, as it came to the end of the year, they wanted me to start with Genesis in the fall. That, that is, I, I was in Romans 8 in the spring, and they really wanted me to start teaching Genesis in the fall on Wednesday nights. And then they also took us a, a, a Wednesday night from me. So I had 
two left and suddenly it was only one and I had chapters 9 to 16 to pack in to an hour and a half meeting. Uh, and we did it. But this, this is the way we typically tack on the application sections of Paul's letters. Yeah, they're there and they're important and we want to know all the rules, but, but uh, we're, we're interested in the theology. We're not so, so interested in the application in a sense. Um, and unfortunately, that's what happened last spring, and it, I was very sorry that, that we did that. But um, the, the point is that this is all leading to a goal, and the goal is the application. And if a summary of the book doesn't include the application, then it's no summary of the book. So Romans one eighteen is a summary of chapters 1 to 8. Okay? And so... The first part, chapters 1 to 4, is talking about righteousness by faith, the just by faith. Chapters 5 to 8 will be about the life of those who are right with God by faith. So we'll talk about those as we go, but we're in, we're in Romans 4 today. <clears throat> Chapter 3 has established that, that righteousness, with, by, uh, righteousness with God is not by works, it's by it's by the work of Christ, and we experience that salvation through faith. Okay? Problem now is, what is faith? We've defined faith before, but I want to go back to it. Because Christians, we've got all this jargon we've used. I've, I've been in church since 1948. <laughs> Virtually every Sunday since 1948. Um, and they've talked about faith over and over again and the pastor uh, under whom I grew up said don't use Christian jargon they don't know what it means so he said for example don't talk about faith explain what it is and I can remember sitting there um, uh, in the auditorium thinking pastor I don't know what faith is and he didn't define it Uh, so I can't I can't tolerate uh, anyone that I'm responsible <laughs> to handle the word with, I can't tolerate the notion that you are not confronted over and over and over again by what the definition of faith is. Because if you don't know what it is, we're just talking about a, um, an ethereal thing out here, and, and uh, it can mean anything at all. Um, you you know that there is a difference between believing that God exists and believing in God. Yes? You know there's a difference. What is it specifically? And that's, we've talked about this before. I'm sorry to repeat, but I, but repetition is the mother of warning. So uh, we're going to repeat it here. Chapter 4, then verse 1. Verses 1 to 8, the law and the prophets testify that justification is by faith, not law. So what then shall we say that Abraham, our father, according to the uh, flesh, found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. So here we've got the testimony of the law. So uh, you know, perhaps, that the books of Moses are called the law in the New Testament frequently. So um, uh, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. That created problems for me for... 10 years, and it took me 10 years to find a way through solving the problem. This word is counted. Okay? I don't know what you have there in verse uh, verse 3. His faith is counted as righteousness. Um, this verb would be synonymous. We'd have a synonymous saying. Uh, I can't talk. You would, we would have a synonymous statement if we said, God says, faith is righteousness. So A is B. Okay? So that, that one word in Greek is counted, is called an equative verb. So whatever the subject of the verb is, is identical, synonymous with the thing that is counted as. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, accredited, but... It, but yeah, it, it, it's synonymous with the verb to be uh, in this setting. And we're going to see it again before we're done. But the, 
but the great problem for me was that the, the, the context in which I grew up spiritually was a context that said, um, you're saved by grace, and that's good, but you're not pleasing Jesus because you're not obedient enough. And the, if you're not obedient enough, then you've got to come down here and rededicate your life, and uh, the pastor will pray for you, and you've got to learn to live the spiritual life. And the way of living the spiritual life was what we were taught in, in the 60s as spiritual breathing. So what you do is you have committed sin, therefore you're carnal. And having become carnal, the only way to deal with that is to confess all known sin, uh, ask for forgiveness, ask for the fulfilling of the Spirit, and then you're spiritual until you sin the next time and you're carnal again. Maybe I I see some of you responding well to that. Uh, So righteous was synonymous with obedience. Uh, it was especially in the, in the, in the uh, uh, church tradition in which I grew up, there, there, were, there were two or three big issues that were mark, marks of spirituality. One was obedience. One was evangelism. And especially, uh, not everyone in that group held this view, but some held that if you're full in the spirit, you will be uh, successful as an evangelist. And tithing; these were the big things. <laughs> uh, so if you did those three, you were in pretty good shape. Why are you smiling, Terry? Sounds political. Well, it's all about the money. Yeah, in numbers. The economy. Yeah, I was a Boy Scout at the same time, and they had uh, membership drives every what was it, spring or so. <laughs> or a fall, I can't remember what. Um, and I, it felt like the same thing, a membership drive uh, to get people there, and I didn't like membership drives at all. Um, so, so, so for me, from my childhood on up until about 1985, um, so a good 30 years, for me, righteousness was synonymous with obedience. But if faith is righteousness and righteousness and and faith is opposed to works but righteousness is works then faith is counted as works but we're not saved by works we're saved by faith but faith is righteousness and righteousness is works that means faith is works I, I was in this loop that I couldn't find a way out of yeah, it's exactly. I, I, I just couldn't. I couldn't break out of it, and it took me until 1985 to get to a point where I could break out of it. And I'll be explaining that a little more as we go. Let's let's read some more. Verse four underscores the problem that I just was telling you. To him who works, the reward is not according to grace, but according to debt. At the seminary, I never went to the president and got on my knees on payday and thanked him for paying me this this month. Never once was I an ungrateful faculty member. The answer is no. They owed it to me. They contracted that. <laughs> yes. So I, that wasn't. It was debt. Their debt to me. Um, So to the one who works, the the reward is not accounted according to grace, but according to debt. But to him who does not work. So what would working be in verse 4? Obeying the law. Obeying the law. Any kind of obedience that you want to name, but especially obeying the law. So not working, what would that be? Unfaithful. Say? Unfaithful. Well, if, if work is obeying the law, then what is not working? Disobedience to the law. To him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, justifies what kind of people? Ungodly. ungodly. God declares, now see, righteousness is what in my thinking? Faith. No, in my thinking, prior to. Oh, works. works. It's works. Uh, so righteousness is works. 
and God has disobedient people that he justifies. Justify means what? What's a phrase that we use for justification? Declare righteous. Declare righteous. Declare righteous. So God declares disobedient people obedient. I had no way out of this. I was just bedeviled by this. I I can't tell you how often I I struggled with this idea, especially in the last years when I was at the college and, and, and teaching Romans, trying to figure out what in the world this book is talking about. Um, so what did you do? I mean, as far as teaching, how did you, did you say, I'm not sure about Yeah, that? yeah. the best thing to do is say, I, did I tell you about learning to say I don't know? <laughs> no. Oh, gosh. Um, there are The last stages of a doctoral program, uh, are, there are two of them, the last stages. The, the next to last stage is comprehensives. That's more fun than I've ever had in my life, I think. Um, and the climax of comprehensives that uh, we had, I think it was six comprehensive written exams, and we had a, an oral exam. Um, yeah, it was six writtens. Uh, one of them I spent 11 hours on. Uh, they didn't have a time limit in those days. Um, then, then they have the oral exam, and you sit with a, a panel of faculty members, and they ask you questions about anything that I, they, anything's open field it's everything is open and so it's an hour and 45 minute process of questioning and then they dismiss you from the room and and, and uh, um, uh, decide did he pass what kind of grade what kind of comments do we need to make and so on so they bring you back in and uh, so I was getting close to the hour and 45 minutes. And I thought, I'm, 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 I may make this. I may survive this thing. This, this is going to be good. One of my professors, um, I was a Hebrew major, so the prof asked me to turn to Isaiah 7 and read it in Hebrew and then translate, answer some questions about the Hebrew of the text. And I, I was well familiar with Isaiah 7. I thought, oh, boy, I'm going to make it here. I'm getting close to the hour and 45 minutes. This is, whew, we're going to make this. Well, one of the men uh, uh, on the committee, he was the chairman of the PhD studies committee. <laughs> He's the big dog in the room. <laughs> Four. Uh, and he was fascinated with chronology, biblical chronology. And he said, Jim, what year did the event in Isaiah 7 occur? And I thought, if I had been a, 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 a butter on a sidewalk in August in Memphis or Dallas, I would not melt any faster than that. <laughs> I thought, how do I know what year? Isaiah is an 8th century prophet, so it must be in the 8th century. He said, that's right, but what year? Well, it'd have to be in the latter half of the, of the 8th century. So that's right. But what year? You know, you can't say anything. <laughs> he thinks I know something that will help me. What do I know? Isaiah 7 is, is, is predicting the fall of Samaria. The fall of Samaria took place in 722 B.C. And something clicked. 732 B.C. He said, that's right. I made it. Yeah. He said, who was king of Assyria at the time? <laughs> Why won't you let up? And I said, Shalmaneser of the fifth. He said, no. Well, I know it's not Tiglath-Pileser the third. He said, that's right. No. Um, Sennacherib. Uh, no, it was uh, Tiglath. No, I, I said Sennacherib second. He said, no. And, and again, it, it, the Lord just put this in my mind because I, I had no index to look it up in in my mind. I, I, it's Tiglath-Pileser the third. He said, that's right. And it was very soon after that that they excused me to the hall and I walked up and down the hall, heard them laughing. Is that good news or bad news? Uh, <laughs> you always have these thoughts going through your mind because this is my... This is, my, this is it. 
yeah, this is it. If I don't pass this, I don't do dissertation, I don't get my degree, I've wasted these, not wasted, but I've spent a lot of money to get to a place where I'm not going to get the degree, and I won't be qualified in the college level and so on. So, so um, when they brought me back in, among other things, they, Dr. Honer said, I was trying to figure out how long it would take you to say I don't know. And I thought, this must be really important. <laughs> and so... Uh, it's far better to say I don't know and then say here are some hypotheses about it, but I, I don't know how to solve this problem. And that this is probably the way I dealt with it in those days, just trying to get through this thing, trying to figure out what was going on. So verse 5, to the one who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, if God declares law-breaking people law-keeping, that's a lie. And God can't affirm a, a um, logical fallacy as truth. Because God created logic. Uh, the reason I know God created logic, folks, is the, 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 the explanatory and predictive power of mathematics in the creation. Is that true? Uh, if 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 that is true of our whole universe, then it has to be what the universe was cre- created with. God is therefore the creator of numbers, mathematics. I, I hate that because I hate math, but I'm so poor at it. But uh, God had to create logic. He had to create mathematics and numbers. These are eternal objects, all eternal concepts. They're in the mind of God. So to, to declare an untruth true would be utterly incompatible with the character of, character of God. But I didn't know how to solve the problem. So verse 5, to him who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is obedience. As also David speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God uh, accounts righteousness with obedience without obedience. He would know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this is the law and the prophets that that Paul mentioned. Uh, the law and the prophets is a very common first century uh, summary of the content of the whole Old Testament. Um, and, and Jews today have a three-part Old Testament: the law, the prophets, and the writings. But, but for them, you see here that Paul quotes the prophets here, and he's quoting Psalms. So, blessed are they whose sins are forgiven and whose, whose, lawless, who, whose lawless deeds are, are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not account sin. Uh, this is Psalm 32. Psalm 32, I, I wish we knew the exact setting of Psalm 32 I, historically. I, I really wish we knew it. I, I have a suspicion that it was written sometime around the time of the Bathsheba event and David's life. When I kept silent, my soul wasted away, and I confessed my sin and so on. So Psalm 32 is a marvelous, marvelous psalm in that regard. But, but David even talks about God justifying the wicked. Blessed is the man for whom the Lord makes no accounting of sin. Um, this blessedness then, is it for the circumcision or also for the uncircumcision? And his answer, now, why does he bring that up in verse 9? Because of the uh, audience. Yeah. He's, he, well, is that? I just said Jew and Greek. Yeah, the whole issue that's going to be addressed in chapters 12 to 15 the disunity in the church. So the strong look at the weak. The strong are people who eat meat, and they look at the weak and they despise them <clears throat> because they don't eat meat. The weak look at the strong and they condemn them because they do eat meat. Which one's right? Well, the answer is neither, 
because eating meat is of no consequence spiritually. Uh, a lady in the church that I pastored said, the problem with you, Jim, is you're eating um, uh, milled flour and and uh, refined sugar, and that would solve all your problems. <laughs> and the reason that you're having trouble spiritually is that you're eating refined flour and refined sugar. Why, why are you laughing? Truth. Yeah, inflammation. Yeah. You get, when you have rheumatoid, you're supposed to not eat. Well, I was, she was talking about my spiritual. She was talking about my spiritual problems. She's talking about, she's talking about her physical. Yeah. yeah. I might be. I wonder if it could be spiritual. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, the, uh, where was I here? I've forgotten. Um, All right. Sugar to water. The lady in the church. Oh, yeah. Uh, as if. Eating refined sugar is a spiritual issue. Um, and if you did that, then spirit, your spiritual relationship with God would be healed. You know, we think it's so foreign to us about this eating meat thing, but it's it's in the church. Is all these kinds of things are here? So. Um, blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not come account sin, takes no account of sin. This blessedness then, is it upon the circumcision or the uncircumcision? If you say that God only justifies the circumcision, then the weak have a leg to stand on. If you say that God only justifies the uncircumcision, then the strong have a leg to, a leg to stand on. But when you say what he says, verse 9, this blessedness then is it upon the circumcision or on the uncircumcision, for we say faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. And there, there it is. That, that statement just bedeviled me along with everything I've been talking about since verse 4. How, how, do, you, how do you put this together? Um, how then is it accounted? In circumcision or uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision, and he received the sign. Uh, the uh, uh, he received the sign of circumcision, the seal of the righteousness that he had by faith, which he had in uncircumcision. Abraham is the test case. He's justified before he's circumcised. So, chapter fifteen, he's justified. Chapter 17, he's circumcised. So that means, as the rest of this portion will tell us, that means that Abraham is the father of us all. Uh, so what, how, did, how did I get out of this? The answer is, is very simple. Um, um, I had a professor who was as near a Renaissance man as we had at the at Dallas. His name was S. Lewis Johnson Jr. Um, incredible guy. And he he said two things. Um, he taught he taught in New Testament department. He taught in the systematic theology department, and he taught philosophy. <laughs> so you know that's that's a pretty well rounded kind of guy, but. Uh, he said, when, you run, when you're reasoning properly and you run into a contradiction, you have to make a distinction somewhere. So you, have to, you have to figure out that there's a distinction that needs to be made. And sometimes the distinction is the definition of the word. Well, about 10 years before I came to this <laughs> sudden flash of the obvious, um, I had read an article in a in a massive work on it, it, it's a, it's a, well, I don't even remember how many volumes it is 12 10 12 volume work and each volume is about so thick it's called the theological dictionary of the new testament it's uh it's it's not recommended anymore it's very scholarly but unfortunately works on a an unsound uh, linguistic basis. And so 
but that doesn't even a blind squirrel can find an, ac- an acorn once in a while for a blind. So the <clears throat> the um, I read an article on righteousness trying to solve this problem of justification that was in my mind. And the guy said, uh, in the Old Testament, righteousness is not forensic, it's relational. Now, that I know that communicates powerfully to you, so let me explain it, even though it communicates powerfully to you. Forensic means a judicial concept. Um, there are two passages. One is Deuteronomy 25, if you'll turn there. Uh, Deuteronomy 25, where, where you can see this idea um, what did I say, Deuteronomy? 25. 25. Yeah, I was going to 5, and I, I thought, I didn't say that. Um, in Deuteronomy, tw- I, I hope it's 25. <laughs> um, yes, it is. Verse 1, if a controversy arises between people, they should go to court for judgment. Now let me let me preface what we're about to say with this. There is no category of innocence in Hebrew law, in biblical law. You're either wicked or you're righteous. These are the only two options. Innocent, the guy before the court who's declared innocent might be the lowest scum in the city. But insofar as the charge before the court is concerned, what innocent means is there is no harm in him. In, in, no keo in, Greek, in Latin means to be harmful, and in no keo means to be harmless. So as far as the charge before the court is concerned, he's innocent. No category like that. The NIV has something like, shall condemn the wicked and uh, acquit the innocent. I think if you have the NIV, do you ha- is that what you have? Anybody have NIV? Okay, well... That's interesting. What translations are you using? ESV? King James? New King James. James. All right. All right. Well, good. Uh, I'm reading here the Net Bible. If a controversy arises, I don't know what it says. Um, If controversy arises between people, they should go to court for judgment. When the judges hear the case, they shall exonerate the innocent. (laughs) These guys should have known better. They shall exonerate the innocent. Um but condemn the guilty. No. Justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. Justify the righteous. In in, in fact, in a controversy before a court, it might be that both were in the right. Do you follow this? So, So there wouldn't be anybody who is wicked in it. And in a court case, it might be that both were wicked. Do you follow this? But there is no category of innocence in biblical law. Um, so, so can a judge make a uh, an accused person either wicked or just or righteous? Um, I guess no. Uh, no, because he's got to look at the law. And- all, all he can do is look at the evidence and and, and measure it by the law. So all a judge can do is declare what the evidence and the law require. So the person is either righteous or he's wicked, but I can't, I can't make him that. So justification is not God making people righteous in one sense. Uh, the other passage I'd like us to look at is in Isaiah 46, 12 and 13. Also, be true to say that a person can be deemed or declared to be not guilty, but there's no way they can be declared to be innocent. Not, not precisely under the law, uh, as it was stated in Deuteronomy 25, and and so uh, Isaiah 46, though. Um, I want to start at verse uh, 6 there. Those who empty out gold from a purse and weigh out silver on a scale hire a metalsmith who makes it into a god. They then bow down and worship it, 
They put it on their shoulder and carry it. They put it in its place and it just stands there. (laughs) It does not move from its place. Even though someone cries out to it, it does not reply. It does not deliver him from distress. Remember this so you can be brave. Think about it, you rebels. Remember what I accomplished in antiquity. Truly, I am God. I have no peer. I am God. There is none like me. Now go down to verse 12. And, and in, in fact, don't look at verse 12. Look at me. Let me. I want to play with your brain just a minute. Right? It's not, it's not going to take long. and I'm not, It's not going to hurt real bad. But verse 12 says, Listen to me, you stubborn people who, are, who, who distance yourselves from doing what is right. What's coming? What's going to follow? Judgment. Judgment. So let now read verse 46. Or verse uh, 12. Listen to me, you stubborn people, you who distance yourselves from doing what is right. I am bringing my... Yeah, oh, the net says deliverance. I am bringing my righteousness near, it is not far off, and my salvation will not... So, so what does God do in righteousness with wicked Israel? He delivers them. How can he do that in righteousness? Righteousness is not so much a legal category as it is. See, in the, in the complaint that the two guys have before the court, they're alleging that the other guy didn't live up to the relationship, didn't live up to the, the um, deal they made. Yes? <clears throat> in Isaiah 46... The reason God saves in righteousness, he saves wicked, idol-making, idol-worshipping people in righteousness is righteousness is doing what is necessary to maintain a relationship. You would know this from Psalm uh, Psalm 23. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. His reputation is on the line, and if he loses Israel, he is no longer... I, in fact, Isaiah 50, 46 is part of a large passage in Isaiah 41 to 48. I guess it really goes all the way to 48. Um, it's, a, it's a courtroom scene in which all the nations are called to bring their gods to the court. And the nations and the gods are to give testimony to their godhood. And then the Lord brings Israel to court, and he and Israel will give testimony to God's godhood. Uh, problem is, <laughs> Israel, as a witness, is blind and deaf. What good is a blind and deaf witness? <laughs> Almost no good at all. So, so God is God is still in this courtroom scene. God is God is saying in Isaiah forty six twelve and thirteen, folks, the way He will deal with Israel, sinful, idolatrous, idol making, idol worshiping people, the way he will deal with them is he will deliver them from Babylonian captivity and fulfill the promises made to the fathers. Why is that righteous? Because they didn't come seeking him. That's one of the most obvious things you can say about the book of Exodus. Israel never came seeking God. He came seeking them. He drew them into relationship with himself. So if he loses them, it's his fault, not theirs. He knew what kind of people they were. Yes? Yes. So if he loses them, it's his fault, and he's a bad shepherd. That's why we talk about the good shepherd psalm, Psalm 23. The good shepherd does not lose his flock. See? Uh, So righteousness is relational. One day, I I was in, in a meeting with a student, and I, I made a statement, and I thought, oh my gosh, that must be true. I had never thought this thought before. 1 Corinthians 1 describes the church at Corinth as those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. And they're fist fighting each other. Yeah, sanctified in Christ Jesus. It's already done. Well, they're not very sanctified. Not in the way we usually use the word. Yes? So... What does it mean? They're in relationship with Christ, and therefore they are holy. 
they don't act in a holy way, but they are a holy people because they are in relationship with Jesus Christ. Yes? Then, then if God says, and here's the thought that occurred to my mind, if God says something is so, then it's so. That's why Genesis 1, that's one of the many reasons Genesis 1 is so important in the Bible. God's word creates new reality. (laughs) And if God's word creates new reality, and he declares you righteous, then you are. You're not obedient. (laughs) I'm not commenting on any knowledge that I have of any of you, but except for Harlan. But, and maybe Chago. I'm not sure about Chago. But they, um, you're not obedient. Uh, you may have growing obedience in your life, but that's irrelevant to justification. Justification declares that you're in, not that you are obedient, but that you're in right relationship with God. And when I thought that thought, God, by justifying us, has affirmed that I have right relationship with himself. If he has affirmed it, it must be true. It may be inconsistent with the lifestyle I've been leading. But it is a fact that God has declared people of faith righteous, in right relationship with himself, then he only does that for the ungodly. So the only hope of being justified I have is that I be an ungodly believer. And if I turn out as a believer to be an ungodly believer, that's what you would expect. Am I making sense to you? And that just turned everything around for me. So instead of having the synonym of righteousness be obedience or obedient, the, 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 the synonym is now right relationship. And what is the nature of that right relationship? Faith. Faith. So... Rules without a relationship lead to rebellion. Yeah. And rules in a relationship can lead to rebellion. Rules will kill a relationship. There, I, Jan, Jan has very few rules for me, and I have very few rules for her. Uh, one of her rules is, if I get out of the bed last, I have to make it. <laughs> that That has an entailment. The entailment is, if she gets out of the bed last, she has to make it but she doesn't always make it. So does that get me a get-out-of-jail-free card? <laughs> That's between, you and, That's between her, me and her. That's right. Um, so... You how to make it up, you don't you make it up anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so here, it, it, it's in verses 9 and 10 that finally I came, I came to this realization what God is talking about is not my behavior pattern. It's about the relationship I have with God. And that relationship is sound because it is a relationship of faith. So he goes on then, verse 11. Uh, we already read that. Let's go on to verse 12. Uh, and so um, well, let, 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 let's read verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision as the seal. of, And, and I'm going to do this here. It's, it's appropriate. Um, your translation is quite appropriate too, but he received the seal, uh, the sign of circumcision, the seal of the faith righteousness he had uh, in uncircumcision, so that he might be the uh, uh, the father of all who believe, though uncircumcised, so that righteousness, right relationship, may be accounted to them, and the father of the circumcision. To those who do not only live, uh, uh, who, who, who uh, do not only conduct their lives arising out of circumcision, but they conduct their lives in the footsteps of the uncircumcised faith of our father Abraham. So the the whole point here is, every Jew who is living by faith is in right relationship with God, and every Gentile who is living, walking by faith, is in right relationship with God. The entailment of that is that um, 
Well, something flitted through my mind, and I thought I would be able to recall it, but it's gone, so let's press on. Um, so we are children of Abraham. Doesn't that make us Israel? There's a wide swath of, of American Christianity that believes that the church is Israel. Israel's been replaced. Or is the church Israel? Are you just saying that theologically, or do you have a reason for saying it? But made a promise to Abraham, and he, and he made a promise to Israel. Well, aren't they the one and the same? No, they're not. Why not? Because Ishmael is of Abraham, but he's not Israel. Oh, that's true. And Isaac is of Abraham, and he's not Israel. And Esau is of Abraham, but he's not Israel. Only the descendants of Jacob are Israel. We, we, we forget that. What are you thinking? Oh, well, it's blowing my mind. <laughs> <laughs> so you can be a child of Abraham and not be an Israelite. Yeah. See? But we're children of Abraham because we share the one thing that is that is common among all the true seed of Abraham. Turn to Deuteronomy 10.16. This is a fairly important verse, and I, I ran across it a number of years ago, and I've used it over and over again in talking about these matters. Deuteronomy 10, verse 16. Um, 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 therefore, the Net Bible says, cleanse your hearts. I wish they wouldn't do this. I don't know why they did this. I'm troubled by it. <laughs> Therefore, circumcise your hearts and stop being so stubborn. Um, I wonder if you went to Costco or CVS or Walgreens and went to the pharmacy and said, I, I need uh, some medical equipment that you might sell. Do you have a home heart circumcision kit? And they will look at you like you're nuts in the first place. Because you are. But, um, you know, it's very difficult to circumcise your own heart. <clears throat> yes. D- turn to Deuteronomy 30. After all the judgment has fallen on Israel, look at 30 verse 1 when you get there. Um, when you have experienced all these things, both the blessings and the curses... I have set before you, you will reflect on them in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you. The final curse of the covenant, Deuteronomy 28, is to be exiled from the land. So, verse chapter 30 is talking about something that's going to happen after their worldwide banishment. You follow this? Yes, no? All right. Verse 6. Let's see how they translated this. Um... Oh, good. They did it good here. They did it well. The Lord your God will will also circumcise your heart. They got cleanse your heart. The Lord, how how do you circumcise your own heart? Well, you can't. Um, Jeremiah, talk, I think it's Jeremiah, talks about people who have uncircumcised ears and can't hear the word of God. He's really talking about the relationship. Yeah. So, but but. They have uncircumcised ears and they can't hear the word of God, so an uncircumcised heart can't respond to God. So they can't, you can't, Deuteronomy 10 is part of the exposition of the great commandment. Deuteronomy 7 through 11. And in my Bible, at least, chapter 10 comes between 7 and 11. Yes? So, so if that's the case, then loving God with all your heart, soul, and strength arises from a circumcised Note heart arises from a circumcised heart. They don't have circumcised hearts. It's their responsibility to to respond to God. They don't have circumcised hearts, and God hasn't done it for them. But in a time after worldwide banishment, God is going to circumcise their hearts and the hearts of your children after you, so that, in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6 says, so that you may love him with all your mind and being so that you may live. Um. So the, the, the issue is that a circumcised heart is what it means <clears throat> to love God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Does this make, make sense to you? Um, uh, he, he says, circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Well, being stiff-necked would mean what? Uh, 
rebellious, stubborn, yeah. Um, which are they in Moses' day? Are they loving God with all their heart, soul, and strength, or, or, or are they stubborn and rebellious? Stubborn and rebellious. So the, the issue then, folks, is Paul thinks faith is what circumcision was about in the covenant with Moses, with Abraham. That circumcision was intended to say, I want you to be sensitive to, to the Lord. Does that, does that convey the notion here? So back to Romans chapter 4. Um, verse 13, and we can just get started on this a little bit today. In verse, yes. Yeah. Yes. It says to, uh, to love him, serve him, serve the Lord your God without your heart and without your soul, and to keep his commandments mm-hmm. and statutes. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. is that obedient? Yeah. That, but it's a, it's the result of the relationship. It's not the cause of it or the nature of it. Okay, I got it. Yeah. Um, physicians always want to know about the symptoms because a particular disorder will have a certain set of symptoms, but they don't work on the symptoms. They work on the cause of the symptoms. And that's what Moses is doing here in Deuteronomy. Folks, Genesis to Deuteronomy is a book about faith. We never have taught it that way. I have never been taught it that way. Not once. But those five books are about faith. And if you don't understand that, you're going to, you're going to be all, all kinds of directions in dealing with those five books. So I, I challenge you, go back and read these things and think about the way of faith and what it is and how it works. So chapter uh, 4, verse uh, 13 then, only those who have faith will inherit the promise to which the law is opposed. So we've just looked at uh, 12, verse 13. For not through the law did the promise come to Abraham or to his seed that he should be the heir of the world, but through the righteousness of faith or faith righteousness. For if the heirs are those who are of the law. Um, Where did that go? Hmm. Uh, Faith is emptied of any significance, and the promise is annulled. The whole history of the Old Testament proves that. If, If righteousness is by works, then the promise is annulled. And if righteousness was by works, Israel never achieved it. So they either the promise is annulled or there's another way to get the promise. Verse 15, uh, 14 rather. For if, no, I did, we just read that. Uh, verse 15, for the law works wrath. That's critically important, folks. You don't make laws for the city of Memphis, the county, Shelby County, for the state of Tennessee, for the United States. You don't make laws to reward those who do good. You make laws to penalize those who do evil. Yes? Mm -hmm. The whole point of law. The law produces wrath. Put this in connection with Romans chapter 1, 18 to 32. Wherefore God handed them over to what? Yeah, well, yeah. Their own desires? Yeah. Let me me, uh, uh, generalize it a bit. Handed them over to more sin. And as we talked about it at the beginning of the study... Like the has, knows no limits. That's right. So as we talked about it at the beginning of the study, it wasn't that he was taking good people and making them worse. He's taking people whose evil he's been restraining. And he takes away the restraints so that they can get into more of the evil they wanted to do. And if there were any spiritual sensitivity at all, they would say, something's wrong. We need to, we need to go to God and find a solution to this. But there is no sp- spiritual sensitivity until you get to the bottom of the, of the pit three times God handed them over. And then the third time, the, the, the real bottom of the pit is they not only do such things, but they take pleasure in, in those who do them. That's where our country is today. People who take pleasure in wickedness. The, the, the issue then, folks, is that the law working wrath, it's carrying out the present wrath of God 
that we defined in Romans chapter 1. The law is part, is one of the tools of the present wrath of God to turn sinful people over to more sin. And that's going to be critical. We're going to come back to 4.15 over and over and over again before we're through. And certainly through, uh, before we're through chapter 8. <clears throat> so uh, you need this in your, in your equipment in thinking about Romans. The law works wrath. But he goes on. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. Um, have you ever been driving and you see the blue lights go off behind you? And you pull over and the policeman walks up and you roll down your window and uh, the policeman says, uh, do you know why I've stopped you? Well, no, officer, I have no idea. I, I, I stopped you because you're obeying the speed limit and I just wanted to say thank you. He gets back in his car and has that ever happened to you? I, I've heard of it happening. Not very often, but I've heard of it happening. <clears throat> One of the northern states and the plain states used to give uh, rewards to people who were keeping the speed limit. I, I, would, I wish they'd do that around here, but they, but nobody keeps the speed limit. So, but, but the point, folks, is you don't make law for righteous people. You make it for sinners to penalize them, to, 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 to sustain the lawgiver's justice. It's essential that God be seen to be just in what he does. So he gives the law so that he may justly penalize the people for their wrongdoing. The, the interesting thing is, God puts off his wrath as long as he can do it without becoming unjust himself. And that's the story of Genesis to Deuteronomy. It's the story of Judges. It's the story of, of Samuel and Kings, Chronicles. Uh, I, this is kind of off the subject, but a, a contemporary question, I guess. We, we see all the laws being made today in our country about uh, we, you know, we have uh, just, we, marriage can be between yeah. any, anything and any whatever. They right. Want. Okay. We've got specific <laughs> laws for how to treat people who are LBTQ, XYZ, ABC, yeah. Is God, God is, is God the author of that law? I mean, people are oh. the author of the law, but... No, that, that, that's, I'm just making that a comment about law in general, not about God uh, making these laws. No, these are not God's laws. Um, this is where Romans 14 becomes very important. Uh, 14, not thir- 13. Romans 13, 1 to 7. Uh, we must obey the government until we can't. And then we have to violate the government's laws. And when we do, and they want to put us, when, when they want to punish us, we must accept it willingly, as Paul and Barnabas did, uh, Paul and Silas did uh, in Philippi. So, uh, uh, no, it's, it's not, that's not the issue here. When we're talking about law in Romans, we're talking about God's law. When I'm talking about law in general, then generally speaking, law is made not to reward those who keep the law. It's made to penalize those who violate it. I guess where I was really going, I, I understand <clears throat> yeah. how I <clears throat> sure. didn't make these laws. Yeah. But, uh, you know, there's God's uh, perfect will, which is basically uh, no sin, no death, no anything. And then there's God's provincial. So, so God uh, has a perfect plan that failed? No, no, no. I, I, well, you said you said perfect will, and and will is the same thing as a plan. Okay. Uh, so God has a perfect plan that failed. I don't know anything that teaches that God has a perfect will. He has, he has his his desire for his creatures that all of us come to faith and and walk in faith in Him. But that's not the plan. The plan is, at, boy, that's a crucial question. My mother called me up one day when we were living here in Memphis, first thing out of her mouth, she was a Bible teacher. Um, and she said, I got to teach a First thing out of her mouth was help. And this was long distance when it costs something to call long distance. And I said, what do you need help for? She said, I got to teach first John five tomorrow uh, morning. And I don't know what it means. What, what is first John five? What's going on there? And she said, um, and this is the this is the confidence that we had toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. 
And if we know that he hears us, we know that we have the request that we have made of him. She said, I prayed for your dad for decades that he would repent of his sin. My dad lived in open sin, unrepentant uh, for all. uh, Well, I I was born when he was 20, uh, 20. and he lived till he was 57. So he, he, uh, I was uh, 37 when he died. And I know that she had been praying for him at least that long. And she said, I know that God's will for his people is that they repent. And I pray that your dad would repent and never did. So what do I do with First John 5? And so it took some time. If, if you would mind making a note to yourself to ask that question again next week, we'll address that. Okay. Uh, this is. This, I've heard that taught so many times. Like that, there's a perfect will and a permissive or yeah, something like that will yeah. that never made any sense to me. Yeah, this is the problem. We've we've made these categories in order to. We think they solve problems, but when we take um, these things not from scripture, scripture creates enough problems for us. But we we create structures and then we try to develop them from scripture and, and show them and then we get into f- trouble with scripture so I think I can help uh, talk about that let's close with prayer uh, Father uh, it's been encouraging to me to go back through this passage thank you for the encouragement um, apparently I needed that today thank you for the feeding um, I pray that you will have done the same for these who are here and for those who will listen to the to the recordings later but more than that father teach us what it really means to live by faith to live as people who trust you and walk in faith that seems pretty nebulous to most of us we think of great missionaries who have stepped out in faith and done marvelous things some of the some of their own co-workers thought they were foolhardy but they stepped out in faith and did marvelous things and that that's what is the measure in our minds of what living by faith is help us as we go through these next weeks in study to see what it means and learn how to live by faith for jesus sake we pray amen